This is Jim, and I am talking to Braxton Ballou and Sarah Black from Valentine Wolf. Hello! Hi! Hi! Sarah's sort of in the back here, and I'm leaning close to the computer and yelling, so I'm more of the talker anyway, but we're both here. Excellent. Awesome. So uh, for folks who are not familiar, go ahead and tell us a little bit about Valentine Wolf to start off with. Well, we are a Victorian chamber metal duo. Victorian chamber metal is a descriptor. Uh, I, if I recall correctly, it was our good friends, uh, Mark and Derek, who have just come up with that at Dragon Con last year. And we loved it because I think it instantly describes who we are and what we do. Sarah sings. I play double bass, even though the band I use an electronic upright bass, and I run it through a variety of distortion pedals and things like that. We tell people, you know, usually, if, uh, depending on how muggle-esque they are, we say evanescence, <laughs> but if they look like they've been to a con or two before, my preference is to say, well, we're kind of like Nightwish, um, just because mm-hmm. I'm a huge Nightwish fan. So, but it's definitely... Um, you know, electronica, gothic, metal band. We also do a lot of scoring and dark ambient work. That's sort of the other side that we haven't presented as much live in concert or at conventions yet, but we would like to. We've scored three Shakespeare plays for theaters here in the Greenville, South Carolina area. For Sweet. We Warehouse Theater, we did Merchant of Venice, and their resident company, The Distracted Globe, we did Twelfth Night for them. And then we just got finished earlier this year uh, scoring The Winter's Tale for Furman University. We like to think if you wish it was Halloween every day during the year, we hope there's something on our website that you'll find that you'll like to listen to. Awesome. (laughs) That is very cool. And yeah, Victorian Chamber Metal is an excellent descriptor. So now you guys are participating and actually running a Kickstarter project right now called Once Upon a Midnight. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that project. Well, Once Upon a Midnight is a graphic novel and concept album Sort of. I'll I'll talk a little bit about it. It's not a concept album in that it's a very linear, this happens, then this happens, and this happens kind of thing, because that's the easy way to do it. And, you know, if if you decide that you want to be a two-person band and have distorted double bass and all that good stuff, the the easy and obvious ways are generally of least interest. Why do it the easy way? (laughs) Exactly. We uh, a couple of years ago we did a uh, a dark ambient score for a local playwright here in Greenville for a play he did called Lamplight and Shadow, which was about the last hour of Edgar Allan Poe's life. And we had so much fun delving back into that material and really working with just realizing again for the nine millionth time just what an amazing super genius Edgar Allan Poe really is and how just amazing everything he does is, especially the atmosphere in his stories. Even while we were doing Music Most Dark, which was, I say it's our new album, it's not even a year old yet, but um, we started talking about wouldn't it be cool to do a Poe project? And then, again, what we noticed talking to people, meeting people at conventions and things like that, even though we increasingly live in a digital world, I mean, even when I buy a CD, I rip it straight into iTunes, that kind of thing, People still like to have some physical media. So we got to thinking, well, why does it have to be limited to CD size? And about that same time, the artist who did the work with us for Music Must Dark, a really amazing artist named Jacob Winska, we talked to him a lot more. He's like, I'd really like to do a more involved project. So we had the source material. We were inspired to do things. We had a really great artist. So we decided, let's do Once Upon a Midnight. Let's make it this. And then it was like, well, what kind of story can we tell about Edgar Allan Poe? So there is an actual story. Edgar appears in the graphic novel as one of the main characters. He's not the narrator. 
I don't want to give too much of the plot away. I, I really, uh-huh. the steampunk aspects of it is it's a very alternate reality kind of story, which we're pretty excited about. Definitely based on Edgar's writings. And we, we picked, uh, we didn't, we wanted to get a good mix of like his greatest hits. So Mask of the Red Death, The Telltale Heart, Annabelle Lee, uh, you know, The Bells, they're all in there. But then yeah. there's some ones that are maybe probably familiar to post scholars, but you know, you don't read them in high school or English 101 or whatever, like that. Uh, Lygia and Morella and the lake and a few other more esoteric ones. Uh, I have to brag on my wife here. I think she did a fantastic job. Some of the uh, lyrics are actually Edgar Allan Poe's poems set to music. Yeah. The short stories, she's sort of taken a phrase here and there and paraphrased them at times, but also added lyrics of her own there. So, again, if you're an Iron Maiden fan at all and you're thinking, isn't that what Steve Harris did with the Rhyming the Ancient Mariner? Well, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're huge Iron Maiden fans, so that was like the other thing. The, the music we listened to, the bands that we really love, we saw them doing this kind of thing. So we um, started doing a Kickstarter to pay for the CD, the mastering costs, so uh, it can be tear your head off loud and printing costs to make a graphic novel slash comic book. And uh, as of a few days ago, we made the $4,000 goal. And as of this conversation, we're um, just a shade over $5,000, which we are humbled and thankful and just just the gratitude is unbelievable to see so many people who um, seem to like our mad experiment as much as we do. It's an exciting project. I'm very glad that it's up there and that I had uh, I've had the opportunity to pledge on it. Yeah, and thank um, you, for that. thank you so much for supporting us. We we cannot. I, I just keep writing this more and more and saying this in emails and phone calls. You know, the words "thank you" never seemed so inadequate. I just <laughs> it's unbelievable to us. It really is. Well, now you talked about collaborating with the artist. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to say this name properly. Jacob Winska. Winska. Jacob Winska. That's correct. What was the collaboration on this project like? Well, Sarah and Jacob went to undergrad together at the University of Georgia in Athens, which is actually where I met Sarah as well. And we've known Jacob for a very long time. And we've been, you know, I don't want to say collecting his art, but for lack of a better term, collecting his art, we've got a really cool piece of his hanging in our studio. And he just, he does amazing work. So the collaboration process was really easy in that we just sort of, when we were doing Music Most Dark, we talked to him about doing some of the uh, layout and everything for us. And on the back of that CD, there's this really amazing, what he calls storybook picture. It's this really dark silhouette of a tree and a, kind of a silhouette of Sarah and I standing under it. It looked amazing. And actually, he just he did a, a sketch of what a cartoon Edgar Allan Poe might look like that's on his uh I think he's got a Facebook page, if I recall correctly. It's Jacob Winska Art. And if you're listening, you should go like his page because he does amazing stuff. Awesome. And Sarah's like, we got to do this. So we kind of pitched him the basic ideas of what we had and said, what do you think? Could you draw some of stuff like this? And for me, it was sort of kind of amazing because, you know, Sarah was just sort of actively emailing me whenever, or Jacob, whenever Sarah gets an idea, freight trains are kind of an inadequate descriptor. She just sort of... (laughs) She is a force of nature. And all of a sudden, all these, you know, PDFs of all these sketches just started showing up. And it was amazing. So really, I mean, I think that the only things that we've said to Jacob every now and then have been like, well, you know, can this font look a little different or things like that? I mean, it's really just been, I would say it's just amazing to work with him because there's just sort of this intuitive understanding 
of what we're trying to achieve musically that he just gets. So it, it hasn't been the whole, I think people think, oh, artistic collaboration, not town drag out. He's got this, no, my vision of the Raven is this. And that's, <laughs> it, it's, it's not been that at all in a good way. So. Cool. Excellent. That's great. Uh, it's always great when you can actually work with somebody and not uh, both be kind of just working at something in, in the same direction. On a personal level, every time I would see Jacob's sketches, I'd be like, man, I, I've got to um, I have to really work on my riffs here. because <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, it, it, in that regard, it's been great. Just seeing what he's achieved has really, really pushed me and kicked me in the butt to just really make sure I'm like, man, the I, I, these not, I mean, you always want to write a killer riff or a killer song, but seeing what he's doing, it's like, you know, the, the bar set really high. We've played most of the songs on the uh, album live. There's going to be 11 tracks on it. We've played six of them live, which is a little bit of a departure for us. And they're clearly the most exciting to play. And it seems the, the reactions we're getting from the audience seems like it's their favorite ones to hear. So I hope once the whole thing is going to be done, and that's to a fellow Congo, I would say we, we started brainstorming, you know, what are the kind of things I want to buy? And, yeah. you know, for me, I, I think about a lot of the bands I see at cons, you know, if Abney Park ever comes out with a graphic novel CD, I'll be like, here, shut up and take my money. <laughs> and same with Voltaire and his visual art, things like that. And just yeah. all the way down, I just, whenever I see bands, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're fans ourselves, too. And, and I should mention, too, this is, um, I'm putting this in the liner notes for the project. There was also, we are a huge uh, fan, progressive gothic metal band Camelot. And Silverthorne's their latest disc. It's this really cool Victorian murder mystery kind of thing. And when we got the packaging in the mail, what they achieved and everything, we're like, this is what we want to do. This is, it's amazing that, that what they put together. So a lot of it's just equal parts inspiration, and a lot of it is just equal parts frankly, saying, well, what's going to get me to brave the ATM line at a con? <laughs> <laughs> nice. You talked for a little bit about sort of keeping up with the artist and uh, a little bit vice versa, just sort of working back and forth. My friend Reese actually found out last night that I was going to be interviewing you about this, and he wanted me to ask you something Okay. Uh, with respect to that. He, he is an artist himself, and so he was curious to know if there are going to be any sort of cross-references uh, if you're, say, reading the comic and you're listening to the music, not necessarily simultaneously, but perhaps, I don't know. Are there any sort of little Easter eggs or sort of references or back-and-forth little connections we should look for? Yes, the Tool fan. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love musical cryptograms. I I love acrostics. It's one of my favorite things about Edgar. Um, he wrote a very famous poem called A Valentine, which we thought about setting, but um, I don't know, maybe maybe we'll get around to it someday. But it, he buries the dedication into the poem. There's a rubric for it and things like that. There are, I would say, both consciously and subconsciously, probably, things that looking at Jacob's art as we're composing have made a way in there. There's one, uh, you know, Easter, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but there's one I will, sure. I will give away because we're really, really proud of it. And one of the songs is the fall of the house of Usher. Yeah. And in that story, if you know that story, the unnamed narrator talks about uh, Roderick's musicianship and him improvising dirges and things like that. And using as his source material, a very famous piece at the time called uh, Weber's last waltz. It was a waltz at the time that was thought to be composed by the German romantic composer, Karl Maria von Weber. Oh, mm -hmm. because we found when he died, they found it among his papers. We now know, 
no, it's actually number five of the Das ist Brillant by Karl Reisinger, a not as famous German composer. Waltzes have a specific musical form or organization, and Usher echoes that organization a little bit, and there's a little bit of tonality and a little bit of melodic gestures that echo that. Very much so. So there's a couple little mirror images there with what Edgar said in his short story, what Jacob is achieved in his visual art. And musically, almost everything is constructed to be that way. We want, rather than just following the lyrics, like I said, in a narrative, the idea yeah. was that each song would be sort of like an emotional vignette. So mm-hmm. let, let the words tell the words, let the art show the art, and let the music add the emotional and atmospheric aura, I guess is a good way to put it. So definitely some crossover, definitely some symbolism. Uh, another good one is in Mask of the Red Death, which, of course, I mean, I for me, that was how my teachers in high school taught us symbolism. One of the things that Sarah did in that is there's sections in there that are in 5-4 time to give the feeling of this sort of off-kilter waltz, the way we kind of did the metric groupings there. It's sort of danceable, but not. And that's definitely intended to invoke the party of the atmosphere of the banquet and things like that. So and it, definitely the way we've organized, again, the form of Mask of the Red Death. It's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It, it really kind of ah. has that sort of seven-room progression kind of thing in there. So oh, there's, excellent. There's some obvious ones, there's some not-so-obvious ones, and there's probably some that I think invariably being a fan of the subconsciousness and the artistic process that I'll be listening to this thing later and going, oh, wow, that was awesome we did that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, now this next question, actually, you can each answer this if you like. And I know this question is one of the most difficult to ask anybody. Mm-hmm. Do you have what you would consider to be your favorite song on the album? Mm. Oh, wow. Mm. <laughs> Choose between your children. I don't think I have a favorite. I like all of them. We were talking about this just recently that we have been so excited to do the subject matter of Poe because... We love all the songs just so much. We haven't released a CD like this before where we liked all the songs so much. I mean, we we definitely like the songs that we've written before, but we just feel like it's, it's a lot more intense for us this time. We kind of wanted to do, and that's one of the things we get asked sometimes in a band, especially in a band with your spouse, how do you resolve arguments? And it's, <laughs> it's deceptively simple, and the deceptively simple answer is we just resolve to do everything by a two-nothing vote. And the tracks on this album have all been enthusiastically, yes, we like that. There was one song in particular that would have been the title track, and I actually, I, I wrote it, I wrote the riff, I wrote most of the lyrics and everything, and I think Sarah was enthusiastic about it, but after we rehearsed it a few times, I was like, no, this this, this one doesn't make the album, I don't like it. Yeah. My favorite song, it's, it's weird, I think my favorite song is usually... Whichever one I, I've worked on most recently, the riff for what is going to become The Bells has really come together, and I really like that song a lot <laughs> right now. And really, the other thing is, there have been two tracks that, until we played live, I won't say I was unsure about, but I, I thought, well, I'm not sure how strongly I feel about this. When and the first one was we played Annabelle Lee at RavenCon, and that was a magical moment, seeing people really get into that song. And we got done with that one and I said oh, oh okay yeah this is one of our better songs ever it's one of the reasons we chose that one to be for like a measure from the lead single off the album the video yeah. we had on the kickstarter and then we just unveiled the oval portrait at a show in Charleston South Carolina a week ago and 
that was one of those great moments where I'm, I'm playing through it, I'm rocking out, I'm having fun, and, and I just sort of looked out, and it seemed to me that everyone else was having just as much fun as I do. So I'm really quite fond of the Oval Portrait right now. Excellent. You mentioned also Annabelle Lee. That's the, uh, of course, as you talked about the video on the Kickstarter, I just watched that again this morning, and I looked back at the poem, and I actually thought it was very interesting. It's very clever because uh, you've taken some of the words from the poem, but it's actually, it's a development Mm-hmm. on it into a uh, a thing that I, I think, as you said, speaks very much more to an emotional position on it. And I really liked that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, the verses are actually about Virginia, Poe's young wife who died at a young age. And one of the verses where he says, let me have under her own hand a letter bidding me goodbye. That is actually a quote that was taken from his correspondence with Virginia's guardians because he was trying to discern if his courtship with her was proceeding. And so that's actually one of his direct quotes. And there have been some scholars that talk about the poem Annabelle being about his relationship with Virginia. So we just decided to really exploit that and make the song about Virginia. That was Sarah. When I was talking early, that was that was all her lyrically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, to, and there's another uh, intentional bit of musical symbolism that we discussed when she sings those lines. I, I think people will notice in the song. That's where we break down the distortion and the drum texture drops. And the texture in the song there is this sort of 19th century drawing room. It's actually all double stops on the double bass up in the higher register to kind of get this sort of over here uh, in the studio. We call it like the quasi string quartet texture to really emphasize the um, the anachronistic aspect of our music, the Victorian aspect of our music, definitely dragging, you know, modern heavy metal back into the 19th century drawing room. So when we put that together, that was very much a deliberate decision to really, in music we call it word painting, when you really do something in the uh, instrumental texture to emphasize what's going on with the lyrics. Excellent. I was actually also just looking down the track listing that you've got on the Kickstarter, the tentative track listing. Mm -hmm. And I was very pleased to see that uh, the Telltale Heart made it in there. That's like my favorite story, I think, of his. Right now, that's the opener in our set list. And again, I'm sorry spending so much of this interview talking about how awesome my band member and my wife is. (laughs) Well, you have good reason, sir. You have good reason. But she really did that because Annabelle Lee was the perfect example when she started saying, well, I'm going to use this poem, I'm going to set this, and she said, I'm going to do Annabelle Lee. And I I said, well, if you think so, I was like, I would stay away from that one. I mean, that's, it's on everyone's all-star list. I, I, I just, I don't know that we could really make that one work. I and clearly I'm wrong. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and after that experience, she said she was like, "So I'm going to do the Telltale Heart now." And I was like, "Well, yeah, okay. Why don't you do that? <laughs> That's totally fine." The Telltale Heart, interestingly, with the riff, we sort of. One of his first collections of works published was called "Tales from the Grotesque Burlesque and Arabesque." What's, uh, I always forget the name, Al, um, I, I always misidentify this poem as being the name of the dragon from Skyrim, and that's not what it is. Uh, Al Araf is one of the first poems he ever wrote. It, an Acrocom this year, I said it was Al Alodin, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Video games and literature confusing me. But there's this definite sort of otherworldly, they used the Arab world to have this sort of otherworld horror quality in, in there, and so... Very, very coincidentally, I started getting interested in Arabic music theory. So when we came up with the riff and everything for the Telltale Heart, I kind of had this idea, well, what if I use some of this harmonic and melodic language to have this sort of 
otherworldly riff, and it wound up being an E minor triad and an F major triad kind of stacked on top of each other, which is kind of dissonant and sort of madness-inducing and out there, but with a little bit of shades of that sort of arabesque feeling. I'm talking about it because, yeah, you said, what's your favorite song? But I'm actually very, very proud of the Telltale Heart, too. I really like it. Awesome. Out. Oh, that's great. And I'm, I'm glad that you're happy that it's on there. That was actually, yeah. I think with a lot of us, that was the first Poe I ever read. That was pretty close to my first one. I can't remember anymore. It's been too long back in the dark and misty, and there's too much of a fog of despair and alcohol in between uh, then and now. But <laughs> so it's hard to recall. But that is one that I remember as being uh, rather significant, and uh, that people kept telling me. But I was like, oh, my, oh my god, this is wonderful. Also, looking at the tracklist, though, I do notice that you've managed to avoid doing the Raven. If you had people come up and ask you, hey, why isn't the Raven on there or stuff like that? Well, well, not yet. <laughs> I'm kind of looking meaningfully at Sarah because she's, I think her weighing in on this would be good. The track that I alluded to that did not make the album, Once Upon a Midnight, did paraphrase and allude to The Raven. So part of it is us cannibalizing our own children, so to speak. (laughs) Oh, that's what they're there for, at least according to Swift. (laughs) It's awesome. Let's see. Why didn't we do The Raven? There's an actual dark ambient sketch of it sort of lying in the studio vault. And then the other thing is, why else did we not do The Raven? Because it may still be an extra as a soundscape. Sarah says it may still be one of our extra soundscapes we may do. We may do it yet. It was one of those things where really, if we omitted anything, it wasn't because we necessarily read it and said, okay, we can't do that. It was more of, okay, we really probably can't afford to do a four CD set. So (laughs) as awesome as it would be, I mean, you know, there's so many other really fantastic Edgar Allan Poe stories, poems, that there's so many different ways we could have gone with it. Yeah, I figure that maybe some people ask about the Raven, but the Raven may be coming. We don't know yet. Okay. We'll uh, we'll sort of stare into the abyss and see if it emerges. That's always good. Absolutely. Um, Now, as you mentioned earlier, the Kickstarter has actually surpassed its original goal. Do you have any news on any stretch goals you want to talk about? We are still researching the stretch goals, and really, the way we like to do budgets, I may not be the most business-savvy sense of the word, but really, when it comes to making a living on here, we really just want to be sure we can, you know, sleep inside. (laughs) It's a good way of saying that we want to try to make sure everything is the highest quality possible, as well as keeping everyone's cost as low as possible because we do yeah. times are not great for everybody. That, that's something we're all kind of living through and going through. Which is a very long-winded way of saying we kind of knew the first thing we wanted to do was sort of an expanded edition of What's Upon a Midnight, which we will be doing for our, all of our Kickstarter backers. The hard copies at, the, at that level and up will do something, and the digital copies, it'll just be easy to expand and add a lot of the program notes. A lot of what I've said, we are actually developing into sort of essays, program notes kind of thing, where I go into a little bit more detail, kind of like if you're familiar with Alan Moore's graphic novel From Hell, which I think is probably mm. the greatest graphic novels of all time. What I love about it were all the notes in the back. So we knew that straight away we wanted to make it more of a historical compendium kind of thing. So that's definitely what we'll do. We can reveal the Kickstarter backers who get a hard copy. We're going to do an edition just for them. And once you get that, if 
if your friend gets jealous at one of our shows and says, I'm going to get one just like it, you can laugh because we're only going to do those for our Kickstarter. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Bonuses and schadenfreude all together in one package. That's excellent. And then past that, we'll see where it goes. We've talked to Jacob about maybe adding some more posters or some more prints to the mix. We're well overdue. I don't want to, I hate to even say this because I don't want to promise this and get people's hopes up, but we are well overdue for a new Valentine Wolf t-shirt. We haven't done one in a long time after we sold out our initial run and there's a design in the book that we all three of us agree would look awesome on a t-shirt. So that may be a possibility. We'll just have to see. We were just happy to raise the goal and we've just sort of watched it climb. I should mention actually, this is a, another Kickstarter sort of exclusive. One of the things that was able to, to do this, we wanted to raise the money for the Kickstarter that's again, we take it seriously. What's the minimum we can do to do this project? And we didn't want to count on the funding, but we've actually received a grant from the Greenville Metropolitan Arts Council Awesome to help bring this project to life and do sort of all ages programming about that. So people will get to see the whole thing premiered live. We're hoping to add some multimedia to the live experience of Once Upon a Midnight, and then that will enable us also to do some even cooler stretch goals. So the financial aspect of this has just been amazingly humbling. So we're confirming the stretch goals as soon as we all come to a consensus and say, yes, we can definitely do this. And then there's a few other dreams we have, but we have about a week to go and we'll have to see where we finish. Excellent. Well, that's great. I'll definitely look forward to the updates on that. And something that you mentioned, I think it's awesome that you're getting that grant, which actually leads into pretty much my last question here. Mm-hmm. I saw in the Kickstarter, one of your ultimate project goals here is educational. Yes. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, by day, I am the education director of the Greenville Symphony Orchestra here in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'm really passionate about music education, and so is Sarah. And we really are passionate, as odd as it may be, you know, I spend most of my time on classical music, but I I listen to and I enjoy and I love classical music because of heavy metal. I mean, metal was the first music that really set my imagination on fire. In all seriousness, I alluded to Iron Maiden earlier, but there's so many aspects of his, the charge of the light brigade, you know, that historical mm. moment, you know, uh, I know what that is because of the trooper. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, you know, my freshman year English teacher at high school talks about the day with my horrible 80s metal hair and I walked into it, I was like, who's <laughs> the Samuel Taylor Coleridge guy? Which is kind of, you know, I mean, high school freshmen asking about Coleridge, this doesn't really happen a lot. So, yeah, part of, I think, the big challenge for music education is it has to be active. I think that people need to be able to make their own music. I think that's the joy of electronic music. I think it's the most powerful thing. I think for all people saying, well, it's cheating. Well, you know, I think it's a tool that just accelerates the process. Yeah. So the main thing that we want to do, you know, we're combining visual arts, we're combining literature, we're combining the music that gets inspired. And at the end of the day, these are just three fine arts students who really wanted, as the cliche goes, let's make the change we want to see on the bookshelves. These are the kind of projects we want to see. So let's just do it. And I really do believe that's the future of, of the arts. So the educational goals are threefold. The first is just to really experience and package what's achievable with technology and a working, you know, a working familiarity with geeky things. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you know, I got to think, I, I firmly believe steampunk. I think that's the one thing that steampunk has got that it can offer that is really untapped. I mean, if you think about all the kinds of levels of geekiness, you have to be to be a steampunk. You know, you have to be a 
history geek, you have to be a literature geek, really helps if you're not afraid to reverse engineer stuff. These are all the kinds of things that people in education talk about they want to see from students. They want to see creativity. They want to see critical thinking. They want to see connections between really different things like, say, music and Edgar Allan Poe. So adding a, a, a vehicle for inspiration, a discussion vehicle, and ultimately a vehicle for somebody, and this is the, the, the punk rockers in us, for somebody to look at this and go, yeah, I can do that. And then go do it. Go make your own graphic novel. Go make your own CD. That's, I think, kind of the other side. You know, there's a lot of lamentation about what the internet is doing to the future of arts and artistic careers and everything. But the good news is it's making it to where if you want to see something, you have no excuse. You can't. If Man of Steel was not your favorite Superman movie, well, then go make your own, which uh-huh. copyright issues and all that. But... <laughs> But still, that we we've got unprecedented access to literally thousands of years of amazing source material. So those are some of the goals here, and I think that if that's what keeps a kid in band, if that's what keeps somebody in strings, you know, maybe I don't want to say, oh, they'll see me play and think, oh, yeah, I'll stay in strings or whatever. But, you know, maybe if you love playing music, but your goal isn't to play necessarily symphonies for a living. Well, I think we're living in a day and age where you can do that. You know, Zoe Keating is one of my heroes because of that. She's fantastic, great classical cellist, making a living in classical music, but not doing the usual, I'm playing every sonata and every concerto and trying to record all of them. You know, it's a very different career trajectory. Um, I think the educational value that hasn't been tapped and cannot be overstated. Awesome. That is excellent. The title, once again, of this is Once Upon a Midnight, and folks can go to Kickstarter and do a search for that and should be able to locate it. And uh, if folks want to find you online and or your music, where should they go? ValentineWolf.com. Wolf is spelled W-O-L-F-E. All one word. We've got a lot of free music online, a lot of the ambient soundscapes you can just download and use them as background music while you're gaming or throwing a Halloween party or whatever. We're totally happy with that. And that's where basically all of our music is. The YouTube channel is The Valentine Wolf. Feel free to listen. Feel free to download. Feel free to share. Just tell people where you got it. Excellent. And do you have any upcoming appearances you want to plug? Our next big show is going to be right here in Greenville, South Carolina at MonsterCon. I'm going to pull the dates up real quick. I should have them. Uh, I'm being told it's the 26th, 27th, 28th of July. Greenville is getting its very own sci-fi con to go with our home con, Upstate Steampunk, which will be in November. But yeah, that'll be the next time you can see us live. We'll be at MonsterCon, Greenville, South Carolina. Go to MonsterCon.org. It's going to be a fantastic event. And we'll be hanging out, roaming the halls. We'll sign anything, even babies. We- <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's, that's good to know. Uh, so uh, all your baby signing needs can be had. <laughs> very cool. We had well, a right. decision about that once. Would we, would we in fact, sign an infant? And we decided, you know what? Sure, why not? <laughs> you can only, yeah, it's, it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Why not do it? Absolutely. <laughs> right. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for having us and interviewing us. We, and thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for coming online and having a chat with us. I appreciate it. Awesome. You was a child. I was a child.